Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's show I've got something a little bit different for you. Those people who are long-running listeners of the show might know why this episode is particularly special. It's because today is the one-year anniversary of the Hardy Report. So for today's episode, I don't have one interview for you, I have ten. The top ten moments from the first year of the podcast. Where better to start than the first question of the first podcast with Sarah McBride, the National Press Secretary of the Human Rights Campaign and the author of the book, Tomorrow Will Be Different, Love, Loss and the Fight for Trans Equality. Here she is talking about the moment she made history at the 2016 Democratic National Convention. Let's start by going back to 2016. How did it feel when you stepped onto the stage at the Democratic Convention and made history? Well, it was truly one of the most incredible moments of my life. As a as a young person, I was a voracious reader of history and of politics. And as I, I read the history books as a young person, I, I marveled at the scope of social change that filled their pages. But I also became very aware very quickly of the fact that no one quite like me had ever made it very far in those history books. And as a young person who loved politics but also knew that they were transgender, I wondered whether the heart of this country was big enough to love someone like me. So to be able to stand on stage at the Democratic National Convention in 2016, to be able to stand on that stage and see my parents and to to look around this well-lit arena of, of tens of thousands of people uh, standing up and applauding and uh, my dignity and the dignity and cause of all transgender people was really an affirming and, and hopeful experience and, and an experience that I think fills me with, with so much pride in our cause and in our movement um, that even through some of the dark moments that have come since that convention, um, I can still find hope in the knowledge that those tens of thousands of allies and the, the millions more who are watching on television are still very much by our side and applauding our dignity and and declaring that our cause is their cause. The aim of the podcast is to explore a diverse range of views, and this show prides itself on giving people from across the political spectrum a voice. So for one of the earlier episodes, I was joined by Jeb Bush's former 2016 press secretary, Tim Miller. Here he is talking about the importance of Democrats welcoming those who've previously had dissenting views. My views, uh, you know, you sort of went over my resume. You know, my background has been working with largely, you know, the uh, now nearing extinction kind of moderate uh, Republicans. Um, And so, uh, you know, this idea um, that is surfacing on the left increasingly, there's a little bit of on the right, but it it, it tends to um, uh, uh, be... Uh, much more emphasized um, in communities on the left that, that people need to be sh- that the conversation needs to be shut down. You know that we're there's this canceling culture, um, uh, and w- what it's doing, I think, is really kind of, kind of limiting um, progressives' ability to you know advance their uh, advance their political goals. And you know it is it's it's. Um, uh, uh, basically radicalizing, I think, a lot of people on the right, um, you know, in a way that uh, uh, is is backfiring on the left. And, and, and you know, I don't want to excuse anybody. Look, I, I find there to be 
pretty much no excuse for supporting Donald Trump. I find his his race baiting and, and, and a lot of his policies noxious, and we can talk about that more. And so I don't want to excuse the people who have done this, but but it doesn't take away from the fact that it's happened, right? I've spoken to a lot of people who are conservative, center-right, didn't like Trump, you know, don't like the tweets, don't like his crassness, don't like his positions on trade and immigration, but have felt very unwelcomed by the left, condescended to, called a rape, called racist, and 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 uh, um, uh, and really sort of driven into kind of the into the arms of Trump. And so, I, I just this is this is a new you know phenomenon. Um, this was not the case you know as recently as the Obama administration and the George W. Bush administration um, that. Uh, uh, you know, people from two sides, even they, if, if they disagree, could not sort of come together and try to find some common ground. And um, it is it, it, it's discouraging for me. But I, I also you know, think in some ways, you know, not my case in particular, but the broader kind of canceling culture is is potentially scary because I, what it could leave us with is. Um, you know, uh, uh, people on, uh, is a conservative movement and a Republican party that um, is radicalized against the left and is more in the vision of Trump and a left that looks more like, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, and et cetera, in your country um, and uh, uh, doesn't leave a whole lot of room, you know, for kind of the traditional, you know, Western, you know, uh, classical liberal values. Barack Obama's longest-serving senior advisor, Valerie Jarrett, stopped by the show for an appearance while on a press tour for her book, Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward. Jarrett wasn't just a senior advisor. She's had a relationship with the Obamas since the 1990s. And without her, Barack Obama might have never sought a career in politics. Here she is on her first run-in with Michelle Obama and how it possibly resulted in Barack Obama running for office. When you decided to change course with your career, you didn't only impact yourself, but you had a massive impact on America because you first met former First Lady Michelle Obama when she was Michelle Robinson, when you interviewed her for a job. Through Michelle Obama, you met Barack Obama and you're seen as the person that managed to convince him to put himself into public life. What was your first impression of Barack Obama and Michelle Obama? Well, I met them both in the summer of 1991, and I was trying desperately to hire Michelle Robinson, who was engaged to Barack Obama, and I gave her a job offer on the spot. Wisely, she demurred and said she wanted to think about it. And when I spoke with her again, she said her fiancé did not think it was such a great idea. And I said, well, who's your fiancé, and why do we care what he thinks? And she said she, his name was Barack Obama and that he had started his career as a community organizer. And he had concerns about her going from a big corporate law firm right into the mayor's office. And I had gone from a big law firm into the law department and practiced for the city for four years before going to the mayor's office. And so he said, how about if we all get together and have dinner? And I was intrigued by that because I would have done anything to hire her. She was so impressive. And so the three of us had dinner, and what I saw in both of them still holds true today, and that's a couple committed to service. And at that stage of their careers, they weren't sure what path it would take. And he always did have the kind of the fire in his belly for politics. She had the fire for service. 
So he combined them both, and she really was not so much interested in the politics, but rather just giving back to first the city and then the country that she loved so dearly. And I recognized uh, in him in those in that first dinner an inner strength and confidence and worldliness. We talked about our childhoods and how we both lived outside of the country and how that shaped our view of the United States and how it fits into the broader um, uh, world. And I thought, my goodness, maybe one day he could be mayor of Chicago. So I can't tell you that I knew back then, Edward, that he would be president of the United States. But I, I just thought that he had an incredible uh, gift and commitment for service. While American politics never stops making news, it's been a busy year in Britain, with the ongoing Brexit saga seeing the country start the year with one prime minister and end it with another. Back in March 2019, then-Secretary of State for Scotland David Mundell appeared on the Hardy Report on a busy day that ended with Theresa May announcing that she was going to step down as Prime Minister to talk about the ongoing Brexit process. Here he is on the difficulties of getting the Brexit bill through Parliament. As a member of Theresa May's cabinet and having witnessed the discussions on Brexit which have taken place around the cabinet table. Can you give us your personal take on the way those discussions have been conducted? I'm a great believer in collective responsibility so you know I'm not about briefing what's happened at the cabinet or uh, how, you know, how the cabinet uh, interact I, I think it's a good thing that there is lively uh, discussion. The Cabinet isn't bound to agree with, with each other. Uh, and in fact, that's part of, the, part of our role, is to have debate and discussion. We've had that. There have been areas of uh, disagreement. It's then for the Prime Minister you know, to pull together what she thinks is the collective view, taking into account her own... Uh, position and I, I, you know, I think in that regard, uh, the cabinet has worked reasonably well. Obviously, at points, colleagues who have not agreed with the position and couldn't sustain a collective responsibility uh, in that regard uh, have left the cabinet, and that's uh, you know that that's what happens if you if you can't uh, accept the collective responsibility of of the decision uh, made. Um, but I, I, I found that Theresa May's approach as Prime Minister and Cabinet is to let everyone have their say, and I think that's a very uh, positive thing. With Donald Trump's actions on the international stage having been a cause for a fair amount of controversy, this next clip seems very relevant. Former US Ambassador to Denmark Rufus Gifford sat down for an hour-long interview about the Trump administration's approach to foreign policy. Here he is on how, as a former diplomat, he believes ambassadors should handle disagreements when they believe Donald Trump's actions are wrong. You talked about how you might have had some differences with the Obama administration and the approach they wanted to take. Given the divisions within US politics under Trump's presidency, if an ambassador was to strongly disagree with policy decisions, how should they act? Should they make those differences known to the president? Should they resign from the job in protest? Should they just outright disagree and undermine the president? How, how do they approach that? Yeah, the third option you lay out, I think, is unacceptable, uh, meaning 
undermining the, um, the American process, I think, is a is is a bad idea. So I think the first two you raised, though, are absolute possibilities. So I, I can speak from the heart and personally, and I consider myself a very patriotic American. There's no way that I could serve or represent the Trump administration overseas. I could not do it. I wouldn't know how to do it. Uh, you know, I spent four years building trust and relationships with Danes, talking about things like the Iran deal, like the Paris Climate Agreement, like uh, uh, like how progressive trade deals can uh, help help our society, help help our uh, help help our communities, our countries, our societies. Like how uh, liberal immigration policy only helps build countries and 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 and, and is a positive uh, is is positive for society. So the idea that I could just go and turn on a dime 180 degrees and say the exact opposite of what I'd been saying personally that I believed in personally for three and a half years, I just simply couldn't do. So I would have resigned even if I wasn't forced out as I was forced out. Um, but I do think, and I said this right after the Trump election, and there were a lot of people who worked for the U.S. State Department who were devastated by the election of Donald Trump. And I remember saying to them on Election Day yeah, through uh, through tears uh, on both both of our sides, I said, you know, please, I don't have a choice. I have got to go home. Uh, he would never let me stay. But please stay. Uh, because you're going to have a lot of people coming in here who don't have a sense of history, don't have a sense of what you all do. And please work work with them on the inside. Make them smarter. See if you can try to change their minds uh, about things like the transatlantic alliance, about things like globalization, about things like liberal immigration policy, about things like climate change. Uh, and, you know, I, I think, honestly, it's gotten much, much, much harder uh, in the last couple of years to do that, which is why we have seen such significant high-level resignations from inside the, 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 the uh, American diplomatic space. Um, but it's, uh, but I do think that's certainly important to make sure you don't just, you don't just resign, don't just, we can't have people just resigning in protest. You also have people, have to have people trying to change policy from the inside. I can tell you firsthand that I was made so much smarter by the amazing men and women who were career foreign service officers, uh, uh, and they made me better at my job every single day. And, and, I, and I hope that some of them are doing that inside the Trump administration now. Um, I think there's a level of stubbornness on the part of uh, Trump's foreign policy that, that may not may make that much more difficult. Uh, but it's um, but I still think we got to try. One of the biggest stories of the year was the problem of harassment and abuse going unchecked and unpunished on social media platforms. Host of Vox's Strike Through series, Carlos Mazza, took a public stand against the harassment he'd been receiving when YouTube refused to act. And in the middle of the social media storm that followed, he joined me on the show. Here he is on the failure of social media companies to tackle harassment on their platforms. YouTube's argument has been that this YouTuber was not primarily focusing on making fun of me for being gay and Hispanic and was instead primarily primarily focusing on responding to my political arguments that it didn't violate its policies. Essentially, YouTube's belief is that uh, you only violate their anti-harassment and anti-hate speech policies if your content is primarily intended to harass and cause hate. Uh, and that is a... <laughs> 
a nonsense policy. Anybody who works or researches in this field knows that's a nonsense policy. It's essentially an instruction manual for how to get away with abuse on YouTube. YouTube is saying that uh, if you want to call someone a lispy queer, as I was called, or a gay Mexican, all you need to do is sandwich it in between political commentary. And uh, it's a bullshit policy meant to distract reporters and advertisers from the reality of what's happening on YouTube, which is that the platform is being overrun by incredibly powerful alt-right accounts. And YouTube benefits from those accounts because they get tremendously high engagement numbers. And, and YouTube knows that if it actually enforced its policies, it would have to shut a whole bunch of those accounts down and it doesn't want to shut them down. So instead, it's creating new strange loopholes to explain why it won't enforce its own policies. Do you think social media companies are culpable for the harassment and abuse that these individuals dole out? Absolutely. What happens when you don't enforce anti-harassment and anti-bullying policies is you create an environment where actors believe they can get away with violations of those policies and engage in them more and more frequently to build up the energy and attention of its base. So you see this with platforms like 4chan, where there isn't any kind of strict moderation policy. And as a result, users keep testing the limits and pushing the limits further and further while building up small armies of followers. And when it gets to a point where someone criticizes them, they can then unleash that army on those people. People like Steven Crowder, bad actors, have always existed in humanity, and they will always exist. The problem is not them. The problem is that YouTube takes those bullies and bigots that queer people try to escape from after they leave high school and gives them the free tools and technology and platform they need to rebuild their audiences and develop real power. And when those audiences then get turned on vulnerable targets, that is because of the environment that YouTube has created. And I think a lot of people are covering the story as a story about YouTube's negligence. It's not. It's about YouTube's complicity in actively arming people who appeal to humans' worst impulses and use bigotry to inflame anger and resentment, and, and, and you know the ultimate goal is selling merch. In September 2019, Zimbabwe's former president Robert Mugabe died. Mugabe had had an iron grip on the country for three decades, before being removed from office in a military coup. Zimbabwean Senator David Coulthard came on the Hardy Report to discuss how, despite no longer being president and now having passed away, Mugabe's legacy still continues to influence the actions taken by politicians within the country. Here he is on how Mugabe's lasting legacy is impacting Zimbabwe. Like most people, uh, Robert Mugabe will have um, a positive and negative legacy. Uh, his positive legacy was the role that he played in ending white minority rule. And I would also say that another positive legacy would be his contribution towards education. He was a teacher by profession, and certainly in the first decade after independence, ensured that there was massive investment in Zimbabwe's education sector. Uh, that said, uh, unfortunately, his negative legacy, in my view, at least far outweighs his positive legacy in that um, he uh, destroyed the economy of a vibrant country, a country that used to have uh, one of the strongest economies in Africa, which was a net food exporter. Um, he utterly destroyed that um, economy. He, uh, his practices resulted in corruption becoming endemic in the country. 
and uh, of course the uh, trademark of his rule was violence um, uh, he disrespected the rule of law he disrespected the principle of constitutionalism he um, oppressed all his opponents um, and he caused uh, directly or indirectly tens of thousands of people to die during his rule um, and so although he does have some positive aspects to his legacy they far outweighed by the negative aspects the show wasn't just about politics though keegan hurst who is the only openly gay rugby league player in the uk joined the hardy report to talk about from a personal and at some points emotional perspective the issue of homophobia in sports and the challenges that LGBT plus people can face. Here he is on his coming out story and the issues he faced on his journey. If we go back to the start of that story, before you became a full-time rugby player, you worked as a doorman at a bar. You, you mentioned that you married your now ex-wife who you had two kids with. When did you first realise that you were gay? I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing. So I think with the benefit of hindsight, I was starting to question my sexuality and, you know, realise that I was attracted to the same sex when I was about 14, 15. Um, but, you know, I was I was playing rugby at the time. I was, I was very big. I was very, dare I say, I, I don't really want to say masculine. I don't really like that terminology but I wasn't um, what I considered at the time a stereotypical uh, what a stereotypical gay man looked like um, which obviously now I know not to be the case but you know part of my ignorance at 14 um, and so I had, I had no one to identify with and I figured this you know this can't be right. Maybe maybe everybody's feeling like this and we're not talking about it. Maybe it's just a phase. Um, I didn't want to be gay. You know, if, I think, you know, when I was really struggling with my identity as I got, and my sexuality as I got older, certainly into my 20s, and I, I was really in deep denial about it. If someone had given me a tablet, you know, that had made it all go away, you know, stopped me questioning myself, I would have absolutely taken it. You know, whereas, you know, obviously now I'm, I'm, I'm proud that I'm a gay man, but it's, um, yeah, it was, it was um, a difficult, it was difficult really. I was so deep in denial. I, I had so many, trying to please so many people, you know, my mum, my coach, the lads, what, what I thought, well, I, I say that I was trying to please them. I was doing what I thought. They wanted me to do. They'd not explicitly said one thing or another, but um, you know, as, as certainly as, as kids and even I suppose as adults, we get ideas in our head of what we should do rather than you know what we could do. So uh, yeah, it was it was that that, that caused the, the issue. So the, I guess the basic answer to your question is, I kind of thought I was gay when I was about fifteen. It's hard enough for most people coming out. I know that many people listening who've gone through that, I'm sure, will also know that it's a very difficult process, both the acceptance side for yourself and also telling others about that. 
But you were in a uniquely public position. You were a captain of a rugby league team at the time. There was no one else like you in the sport. Do you think it was the internal struggle that you were going through that held you back? You mentioned how at the time there was no one that you saw out there that really looked like you, that was in the same position that you could relate to. Do you think it was the internal struggle of feeling like there might be some blowback or trying to come to terms with it yourself that held you back from coming out earlier? Or do you think it was the fear of the reaction you received? I think it was probably the... The fear of the reaction, um, and and ultimately, I, I wasn't I wasn't ready to come out. I I if someone had told told me that I was gay, if someone had said explicitly to me you're gay, I would have den- flat denied it. Um, with with full conviction, like I I didn't I. I I didn't want to be. I didn't believe that I was. I thought it'd go away. I was fully committed to not being gay uh, for a lot of years, and yeah, I think there was never a point where I, I thought maybe I'll come out because with that comes the the thought process of accepting that I was gay, and I, I never did. Um, because with that comes the the idea that you know when I married my wife, I was, I did it under a pretense, and although looking back, I, you can say that I did. Um, at the time, it it wasn't that. It was I was never, I never thought I'm gay, but I'm going to marry a woman, and that'll hide the fact that I'm gay. It was, I'm not gay. I don't want to be gay, and I'm going to do what people who aren't gay do. And I'm going to get on with that. And anything else that I'm thinking or feeling, I'm just going to bury really deep, put it in a box and, and leave it alone. Author and activist Marianne Williamson recently dropped out of the Democratic presidential primary. But while she was running, she came on the Hardy Report to lay out her policy positions and make her pitch to the American people as to why they should elect her as the next president of the United States. Here she is on why her lack of political experience, although heavily criticised, actually, in her view, makes her uniquely qualified to serve in the White House. Let's tackle one of the main criticisms that has been levelled against you, which is your lack of experience in elected office. People claiming that disqualifies you from being president. On the contrary, you believe it makes you uniquely qualified to run for president could you expand on that, why you think it's a positive, not a negative here? Well, I'm not trying to in any way diminish uh, the value of political experience, but I do think it's worth noting that very experienced politicians led us into the war in Iraq. Very experienced politicians led us into the war in uh, Vietnam. For that matter, there's a larger picture here. The very experienced politicians brought us to where we are today. It's naive of us to think that all of them were created by Donald Trump. In fact, all of the problems created Donald Trump. I have a lot of respect for uh, political expertise, but there are many different kinds of expertise. And I look at political expertise like good car mechanics. We have a lot of good car mechanics in the Democratic Party. But the car mechanic, even the best car mechanic, even if you have the best car, 
doesn't necessarily know which road you should take uh, if you're trying to drive to New York. And the problem in America today is that we're on the wrong road. And for that, we need a political visionary more than we need a political mechanic. This is what you have a vice president for. This is what you have cabinet officers for. Those are management functions. Our, our, uh, the, the, the chief executive function at this moment needs to be visionary. And this is why President Franklin Roosevelt said that the primary responsibility of the, of the presidency is moral leadership. We, it, we, we are so off our moral compass in our country. The way we are allowing children to be hungry, the way we are allowing so many tens of millions of people to be unnecessarily economically anxious, the way we are not providing health care just so that health insurance companies and big pharmaceuticals can make more money, the way that we don't have reasonable gun safety laws just so that gun manufacturers can make more money, the way we have carcinogens in our food and 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 contaminants in our water and, and toxins in our air just so that oil and gas can make more money. The fact that our national security agenda and our lack of moral leadership in the world has to do with, so, with, with the short-term profit maximization for defense contractors. This is not at heart a political problem. This is a moral problem. This is what happens when an amoral economic system corrupts your government and hijacks your value system. And I believe that someone with my career, my career is, is the ability to discern that. My ability is the, it, based on my experience and my qualifications, is the ability to see deep down what's really going on here, kind of radical truth-telling that is necessary to cause the kind of inspiration and motivation to actually make the changes that must be made or very, very dark days lie ahead for my country. For our final moment of season one, over the last 12 months, many candidates have appeared on the show to talk to voters and give their pitch as to why they should be elected. One of those running a grassroots campaign is Kimberly Graham, who's running for Senate in Iowa in an attempt to unseat Joni Ernst and flip the seat blue. Here she is on her efforts to create a level playing field and get money out of politics. You've put campaign finance reform in your policy platform. You've pledged to push sweeping anti-corruption legislation and get big money out of politics. If you're elected to the Senate, you'll find a great companion in the Senate in Senator Elizabeth Warren, who also is working on that sort of policy. There are other Democrats that are doing that. But do you think that it's ever going to be possible to get anti-corruption campaign finance reform legislation through Congress when there are so many politicians that don't take the same approach as you as Senator Warren because they like getting those donations. They like being beholden to big money corporations because that's what keeps them going. So they wouldn't want to bite the hands that feeds them. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, I think it, it's unfortunately it's, you know, this didn't happen overnight and it's not going to get fixed overnight. Um, that would be nice, but that's not going to happen. However, we did see a very nice, strong glimmer of hope, you know, in the 2018 elections. We had a number of people elected to Congress who are working class people, did not come from big money, are not well connected to a lot of money, and didn't take corporate PAC money and didn't take 
you know, money from those from those kinds of entities to get elected. Um, they got elected, a lot of them, on a lot of really small donations from a lot of people. Um, I think it was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who said, I'm sure other people said it before her probably, but I, I first heard her say it, you know, they have money, we have people. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's of course, boiling it down to a sim- simplistic little saying, but I think that that's kind of how this is going to this is going to change and the tide is going to turn more and more people I think are becoming more and more aware of the level of corruption and what's going on kind of behind the scenes and behind closed doors and backroom deals. And they're not having it. They're, they're getting tired of it and they realize, Hey, you know, a lot of us have kind of been had, so to speak. And, and more people are voting and more people are getting more politically aware and donating small amounts of money to campaigns that they believe in to really try to get that Congress and also their state houses, you know, in their individual states, um, their state legislatures to get those bodies made up of regular kind of working people and not just people that are wealthy or well connected already. That's all for this week and season one of The Hardy Report. Season two will be back next week. Thank you to everyone who's listened to the podcast over the last 12 months, given us a five-star rating and shared the podcast around. Here's to the next 12 months. Until next time, goodbye.